Orcas and salmon are friends that need help. Our ocean pals are facing some trouble. Less trouble, more bubbles. There's so much we can do. Do you know what I'm thinking? Let's start preaching extinction. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Breaching Extinction podcast. This week for episode 55, I'm going to be chatting with student at Eckerd College, Jake Ryder. He's been our um, cultural resources intern here for the last several months, and he just finished up doing his research project at Eckerd College, focusing on capitalism, culture, and orcas. So I'm super excited to dive into this conversation. Before we get started, just a couple quick announcements. So next month, we will be resuming our episodes. It's probably going to be bi-weekly, coming out again every Monday. Um, so you can look forward to that one. The first one will be on February 1st. Um, I'm going to have Shelby Nielsen and Liam Dasset both on that. So super excited to move forward with that project. Also want to remind you guys, if you want to continue to support this project, feel free to check out our Patreon. Um, And then also we're going to get our newsletter started up and going again. So if you're interested in signing up for that, check out either our website or the links on our Instagram page. But hope you guys enjoy this. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Blackfin Coffee. Blackfin Coffee is an e-commerce coughing roasting brand based in Seattle, Washington, and I want to tell you guys about them. I was really inspired by the brand's focus to initially partner with PNW Protectors and Lock Arms to help save the southern resident orcas in the Pacific Northwest. For more information about them, visit www.blackfin.coffee. That's blackfin.coffee. For our listeners, Blackfin is offering 20% off your first purchase when you use the promo code BREACHEXTINCTION at checkout. Again, head over to www.blackfin.coffee to redeem your promo code today. Alrighty, guys. So this week I have um, Eckerd College student Jake Ryder here. He's working on a project for his winter term. Um, I also went to Eckerd, and so that's how I got connected with Jake. So do you want to introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about your project. Yeah, hey. Um, so I'm a junior at Eckerd. I am an anthropology and environmental studies major with a minor in political science. And I'm doing an independent study right now on basically to sum it up on capitalism, culture, and orcas. So the goal was to kind of understand the switch of perception towards orcas and how capitalism influenced that while um, trying to understand the indigenous perspective as well. And then I kind of wanted to focus on um, one type of activism that the indigenous population did for orca conservation, specifically with Lolita, which we all probably many of us know about. Mm-hmm. Um, could, do you want to give our listeners a little background on who she is in case we've got anybody new who may not know who Lolita is? Yeah, for sure. I'm going to talk about her uh, some more later in the conversation, but basically she's one of the eight orcas that were caught in the 1970 Penn Cove Roundup, and she was sold to the Miami Sea Aquarium here in Miami, Florida, where she's lived her entire life performing twice a day in a tiny 20-foot tank um, where she performs and eats frozen salmon and just lives a really awful life where many people have been fighting for her freedom. Yes. It's a truly a sad story. 
It's so sad. Yes. Awesome. So do you want to dive into what your topic of study was about? Yeah, for sure. So first I want to talk about the um, relationship that Indigenous people of the Pacific Northwest have with orcas and how that relationship was before colonialists uh, people got there and colonized and kind of took over the area. So like when we think about orcas now, we think about the giant, like beautiful, gentle creatures that either swim freely in the cold waters of the Pacific Northwest, or you think about the orcas that we see that are slaves to human entertainment. Mm -hmm. So those are kind of like the two perspectives that we have now. And it's two very drastic, like different perspectives. And what we fail to realize is that there's such a rich um, history with orcas and humans before this relationship kind of took over. So the indigenous people of the Pacific Northwest, they have had this relationship with orcas for ever since the beginning of their times. I mean, they've been living in the same environment as orcas. They've been they rely on the same food as orcas. I mean, they both rely on Chinook salmon as their main form of sustenance. And this, I mean, not all of the, like you can't group all of the indigenous people to the Pacific Northwest together because mm-hmm. they're all so drastically different. There's just so many different nations and tribes, but they all share this one common interest, which is the orca. They all share this respect and admiration and many of these like many of these tribes have even adopted the symbol of the orca on their tribal crest Mm -hmm. and for them the symbol of the orca means longevity romance community and family Mm -hmm. and this this aspect of it is really shown when you look at their tribal legends of the origin of orcas Mm -hmm. there's there's two that really stuck out to me. One of them is from the Haida people, and it's called the Wolves in the Sea. Mm-hmm. And this one talks about how wolves would go to the sea and they would dip in and grab like a fish or maybe a Chinook salmon and then place it on shore. Mm-hmm. And then people would come and have food and eat it. Mm-hmm. And then one day the wolves fully submerged into the ocean where they transformed into the orcas that we know today that's incredible it's so cool and like you can connect the relationship that people have with wolves now like we see them as these vicious dangerous things that live in the wild and colonialists kind of took that perspective and placed it on orcas as well they see they see them as these vicious, dangerous um, animals that live in the ocean. Mm-hmm. So they kind of took this tribal legend and spun it in a colonialist, capitalist way. And they're like, okay, yeah, it makes sense. Like, orcas are these dangerous things, just like the wolves, which is just not true. Yeah. So just not true. <laughs> so basically, you know, kind of to recap what you were saying is that the different indigenous groups throughout the Salish Sea have had... Um, like a positive relationship with orcas and not seeing them so viciously. And it was the col- like the colonialists that came in and they're the ones that are like, they're vicious. Yeah, absolutely. The indigenous people have been coexisting with the orcas for, I mean, such a long time. Mm-hmm. 
and they rely on the same diet. They don't see them as competition. Like mm-hmm. they aren't trying to outcompete the orcas with the salmon. They're trying to like help each other out. They see it as a dialectical relationship where they provide for the orcas and the orcas provide for them. And there's there's another legend that I I really love. It's um, a little more dark, but mm-hmm. uh, the Lummi people they have this legend that talks about the origin of orcas being as people that go out to sea and don't make it back home. They believe that when they drown at sea, that they go to the ocean floor and from there they transform into an orca. So this is like where we see that kind of human perspective mm-hmm. on the orcas or seeing them as their families, mm-hmm. not as just this animal. They see their loved ones when they look at the orcas. They see the people they lost. And it is this huge relationship that is just beautiful. And there's just this great amount of respect and admiration for the orcas. And then all of that was just uplifted and dismantled as soon as you know, colonists came over to this region and put their perspective on everything. So does that perspective just come from the original um, kind of legacy that you had talked about or was there more to it? Um, like which perspective, the colonist one? Or yeah, the-, the colonist perspective. So like, did they like, did they just, you know, get that idea because of the association between wolves and orcas or was there more to the story? Well, so people uh, came to the Pacific Northwest and they, they, by the mid 1800s, people came there and they started commercial fishing and whaling and just over exploiting all the resources in this abundant environment because there's so many, so many resources in the Pacific Northwest that are very valuable, Mm -hmm. both in, you know, like our capitalist agenda and it's just there's just so much beauty and when colonists came over they saw it as something to commodify Mm -hmm. so one thing that they really saw was the open water and the abundance of uh biodiversity that was in Mm -hmm. it so their initial um start was you know fishing for the chinook salmon um doing the whaling Mm -hmm. and then they noticed that there was this major decline in biodiversity and you would, you would like us today, we would acknowledge that that's mm-hmm. because of the exploitation that they were fishing and doing all of this, but they, they needed someone else to put the blame on because, mm-hmm. you know, for humans, we can't just blame ourselves. Right. So what they did is they saw the orcas and they saw that the orcas were these, Um, giant like masses of flesh with sharp teeth and these dangerous creatures that go out of their way to kill humankind and all this just monstrous Mm -hmm. stuff that the indigenous people like obviously knew that was not the case and they preached how like gentle and important these animals were so when when all of this loss of biodiversity was happening they they put all the blame on orcas they were Mm -hmm. saying that orcas were killing all the other whales the orcas were eating all of the salmon and essentially they just used the orcas as a scapegoat to you know get rid of their own fault right 
and uh, it's just so stupid. It's yes, just human, you know, the capitalist is. agenda. I don't know if you um, have, like, seen this, but one of the, like, plans or ideas that was put into place to, like, help conserve the orcas was to kill a bunch of... Um, the seals that were up, like, in the Puget Sound, because apparently, like, they're eating the salmon or, like, they're taking up too many resources, which, like, completely unrelated. And a study just came out saying that they actually eat the fish that eat juvenile salmon. Um, so I-, I guess not a whole lot has changed since then. Yeah, no. I mean, we have such a long line of history and our existence as humans mm-hmm. of just, like, obviously over exploiting things and being aware like like deep down we're aware that we are the cause but the thing with capitalism is that we have to place blame on someone else so that we can continue what we've been doing absolutely and like at what point do you stop and question is this worth it is this enough or like even is this how we're supposed to live as humans i don't know about you but, like, I question that all the time, like, at least with capitalism. Like, what's the purpose of, like, an existence like this where we're just working and consuming and continuing to be destructive to the planet and to communities and other people, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, like, during this time when we were first, you know, putting blame on orcas, it wasn't just, like, commercial interests that were, like, mm-hmm. you know, orcas are killing everything. It was, like, global headlines on newspapers that would say um, orcas, like these dangerous evil creatures of the ocean causing, uh, you know, biodiversity loss and causing deaths of fishermen and all this. Mm -hmm. So like it was the whole world was being told that, you know, orcas are killing and being these monsters. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I found that, was just absolutely crazy and I still can't understand it is that the US government actually put a federal bounty on orcas to be killed. And like that's a government enlisted eradication like completely wiping out. They wanted the orcas gone. They said they're killing too many um species that we rely on. Um to they're wiping out jobs that we were trying to create. And this wasn't even in our own waters. There was uh, a, the U.S. government worked with uh, Iceland, and they actually sent U.S. vessels to Iceland to bomb and torpedo and machine gun kill all these orcas. What? I didn't know about that. Jesus. Oh, my God. And it's all, all because they claimed that orcas were killing the things that we were killing i feel like this is a really good like just place to interject that this is why we need science and why we need to listen (laughs) to science because i mean what we know about orcas is that it's the southern residents who are eating the salmon so they could be out there shooting the transient killer whales who are eating marine mammals and it wouldn't matter but also the whales in Iceland have nothing to do with the jobs over in the Salish. So yeah. maybe like before we take really massive steps towards destruction, potentially assess our choices along the way. Luckily we mm-hmm. do have scientists now. Like we have a little, a lot of really awesome scientists who have been, you know, dedicating their lives to studying orcas and this habitat. So yeah, this is what could happen if we don't listen to scientists. If we just listen to people who just talk because they 
want to talk or they just want something. <laughs> they want to be heard. Yeah, yes. 100%. And there still are people in the ORCA community that are like that. Not everyone, I would say for the most part, people are science-based, but there's still a lot of people that just say things without any scientific backing um, and suggest policies or regulations that don't wouldn't necessarily maybe be suggested by somebody who actually studies the animal. Yeah, and at this time, uh, there, like, wasn't science on orcas. True. Like, there was no, you know, no one was trying to understand them or learn about them. They were just trying to enforce the capitalist agenda on the new territory that they conquered. For sure. And, and like, that's, like, that's, that's just shows how we, if, if we're going to expand and go into new territory and stuff, I mean, we're at a point now where, no one should be going and conquering any land that's already taken no. because it's already all been taken. Right. And it just shows that like you have to understand and truly research and understand something before you approach it, because this is what happens. Yeah. Like, we have so much proof and so much evidence of the destruction that happens when you don't, when you do something that you truly just don't understand. Absolutely. Um, what is so, the time frame of like that particular time when they were like going and doing all this in Iceland um it, it was the started from the mid 1800s and it didn't stop until the beginning of the 1900s or like the end of the 1800s oh my god so it wasn't that much long ago which is crazy no. like even though maybe like 100 years it's still you would think that they wouldn't be killing you would think whales that are not not killing what they think they're killing it's... yeah i mean the international like whaling commission came into fruition i think in the 1970s at some point but that's when a lot of the protections were put on whales was in the 1970s but even mm-hmm. so which i'm sure you'll dive into the capture era went until like 1975 76 i believe yeah. um yeah. yeah so it's craziness yeah so that like perception of orcas as these like worldwide villains set out to kill everything in its way lasted until 1950. I mean, that perspective of orcas as villains carried on throughout, but it was slowly being transitioned into this new type of commodification Mm -hmm. while respecting their beauty. Yes. Because in in the 1950s, uh, the first attempt to capture a live orca happened, Mm -hmm. and it, it wasn't successful, the first one, but it caught people's attentions and mm-hmm. they're very invested in seeing someone catch a live orca mm-hmm. so in 1964 canadian murray newman set out to capture a live orca for a specimen collection and museum display he mm-hmm. went in with like scientific purposes but that's not what he actually did when he got the orca in his hands so he he bought a orca that was accidentally caught i i don't really believe that it was accidentally caught mm-hmm. i mean how you can can't you... accidentally catch an orca yeah. no that's not gonna <laughs> yeah. yeah you can't do that it's huge yeah um so he bought this orca for five thousand dollars which was the first time we really set a price on orcas and truly commodified them mm-hmm. and five thousand dollars for a whale just that's crazy. Like yeah. I would, I mean, I don't support a price on them at all, but they're more than $5,000. Oh yeah. They're <laughs> definitely worth more than $5,000. <laughs> oh 
Like, they're so, worth billions of dollars. Like, I mean, you're right. They're not worth, like, they're priceless. But, like, come on. That's so cheap. <laughs> yeah, $5,000. Come on. So, yeah, um, the whale that he bought for $5,000, uh, he named Mo- Moby Doll. Mm-hmm. And he only survived two months in captivity before he died. But within those two months, he kind of shook the world and started this new uh, perception that people had on orcas. He showed that you can like swim with an orca and he won't kill you. Mm-hmm. And he proved that you can be like the orcas can be gentle. He proved that they have their own type of culture and they have this just beauty to them that people started acknowledging because they weren't being fed the capitalist jargon of monster like the monstrous orca that everyone Mm -hmm. thought they were so even though he he died after two months people were really like wow i like this was the period of time when people were like i love orcas like i want to go see them and stuff so uh people were like asking and trying to find where they can buy orcas so they Mm -hmm. can put them in captivity and this was the initial boom of the captivity era. Mm-hmm. Um, so by 1965, Ted Griffin, who was the owner of the Seattle Aquarium, he that, that's when he got Namu. Um, he bought Namu, who was another orca. Mm-hmm. And uh, newspapers, like the... The news of Namu going to Seattle mm-hmm. was global, like on all international newspapers, and it was super glorified that an orca was going to the Seattle Aquarium. Merchandise was being sold even before Namu got there. People were like, "This is incredible! We want to see Namu," and they were selling everything they could possibly sell to you know just make more money off of him. Mm-hmm. And the mayor of Seattle at the time, he loved Namu. He was absolutely thrilled for the idea Mm -hmm. to have a live orca in the city. But for him, it was not about Namu that he loved. He Mm -hmm. loved the economic potential that he would bring to the city. He Mm -hmm. actually said, Namu brings such hope for Seattle because he's going to bring us the money to work on our city's waterfront development plan and and at that point you you are just seeing what orca captivity means to people they're they're not respecting the orca they're not thinking that they're going to learn so much from seeing them in captivity they're thinking about the the drive to bring up the economy to develop the city and that's something you don't see in the indigenous perspective like they don't view orcas at all for economic reasons. They see them as a cultural icon, as mm. family, as something to respect and observe and just leave in their natural environment, which mm. it's a whale. Why, yeah. I mean, what is, why would you think about putting it on yeah. land? Yeah, no. It's, it, that's so crazy that for hundreds of years, the indigenous people lived with, I mean, it's not crazy. It's really not crazy. It's upsetting. Like, when I say crazy, I mean, like, shocking, but it's not shocking that they lived there for hundreds of years, like, untouched, like, 
cooperatively and then you know we get that classic narrative of colonialism like coming in and taking over and turning it into something that it doesn't need to be yeah and then just like that it switched once again to like a different capitalist narrative going from the they're destroying our commercial interests so let's kill the whales to oh wait we can commodify the whales if we put them on land and make people love them right so it's it's crazy that it there was such switch in the perceptions of orcas. It was first the indigenous perspective, mm-hmm. and then it went to the vilification perspective, and then it went to the admiration of captivity, and then that. But that's not even the last uh, switch that they mm-hmm. did in perspective. They so like people around the world were hearing about the orcas in captivity. Some A lot of people loved it, wanted to go see it. But then in 1970, which is when the Penn Cove Roundup happened, um, these two men set out to capture a bunch of orcas and sell them to 15 different marine partners around the world. So they went in to the Salish Sea and they brought a bunch of boats with bombs and bright lights and airplanes overhead. And they... Uh, found a meeting group of where the orcas were and they pushed them into Penn Cove, which is this tight little inlet that they can block off. So there's not a way that they can escape. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they were bombing the waters, having planes fly low over so they could disorient them and kind of just make the orcas not able to fight back. And they rounded up like 80 orcas mm-hmm. into this small, tiny cove and there was a bunch of mothers and babies at the time. And the their goal was to capture the babies. They, you know, the younger the orca is, the more mm-hmm. worth it was at the time. And the mothers, like, they're fighting to their deaths to get their children back. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the orcas did die. There were many uh, dead orcas that they drowned and their bodies were towed out to the ocean. They wrapped them up with heavy weights and sunk them to the bottom of the ocean to cover it up because they didn't want the public knowing that they were killing the orcas because people wanted them in captivity because they admired them. Right. But then, you know, eventually they washed up on shore because you can't just assume a whale's body is going to stay on the ocean floor. Right. So there was a lot of public outcry from this. And people were angry, especially local, like local people of the Pacific Northwest were very angry because they saw what was happening. They heard the cries of the orcas and they set out to, this is when the initial role of activism kind of stepped up for orca, mm-hmm. orca captivity. And that was 1970. And at this time, there was also a boom in scientific um, research with mm-hmm. orcas. You know, the uh, in 1972, I believe it was, the Center for Rail Research was established and the, um, the Whale Museum was also established in 1971, I believe. Mm-hmm. And those, for the most part, were ran by local volunteers because it was truly the local people that were kind of stepping up because at this time, 
they kind of adopted orcas as a cultural staple for them, even though the entire lives of the indigenous people, it was a cultural staple for them. 100%, yeah. So that was just ignored. And as soon as, you know, the non-indigenous people um, were respecting orcas, they're like, this is this is my culture, when really it's, it's not their culture. No. And when... But when it became their culture, they wanted to do something about it. Which, yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yikes. So, yeah, so out of the Pentacove Roundup, um, they only ended up keeping eight of the orcas that they caught. Mm-hmm. And they sold them all around the world. I think they sold one to California, one to Florida, uh, one to Japan, Russia, and I think Australia, maybe. Um, and the one that was sold to Florida was Lolita, mm-hmm. the the one that she's she's the most famous out of all of them, and she's the only one that's still alive. Yeah, which it's so unbelievable that she's the only one that's alive when they were they, like they should all be alive in the wild right now. 100%. They most likely would be alive. Yeah, and and she is a southern resident. Um, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure that she does still have relatives that are alive. Yeah, she does. So she's actually, right now, she's the only um, uh, female descendant of the family. So if she doesn't return to the wild, there won't be like a continued family because, you know, they're matrilineal and go off of the mother. So she's the only hope for continuing the family that she came from. Wait, is she, like, even reproductive, though, right now, or? Um, I'm not sure. I don't even know if, like, the Miami Sea Aquarium has let any research happen on that, because I doubt if if people knew that, like, she was still reproductive and able to have offsprings, they would even push more for her to go back. For sure. I mean, I'm, I'm like, we've seen that captivity definitely impacts, like, their physical health, their mental health, like their dorsal fins will collapse, at least with the males. So, you know, who knows if it affected her, you know, reproductive success in any way. Um, That's like interesting though, too, you know, thinking about the idea of an endangered species being in captivity and how, how can that be legal, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like in Canada in 2019, they banned the captivity of all whales and dolphins entirely. And that's something the U.S. simply just hasn't done. And, I mean, they finally listed uh, the Southern residents as endangered, and they acknowledge that, but they have yet to do anything about bringing Lolita home and releasing her into the rightful water that she came from. Because, like, her family's still out there. She She's not that old, and she's been living in this concrete tank where she has sensory depriva- deprivation because she can't hear any of her family. She doesn't use her own language anymore, really. Yeah. And it's just so sad. I mean, she doesn't even want to eat live salmon anymore. She will only eat frozen, beheaded salmon. Oh, that's sad. That's so yeah. sad. I know, like, I talked with Lori Marino, um, who's the like whale neurobiologist and she 
our cetacean neurobiologist, but I asked her, like, what she thought about Lolita because she opened up the Whale Sanctuary Project in Nova Scotia, and, like, um, she didn't have any, like, direct answers on whether or not, like, it would be successful to release her back into her natural habitat, like, with her family, but she, you know, obviously is a proponent of getting these animals into, like, the sanctuary up there because it's just, like, they're they're outdoors, but they're still, like... You know, they're in the natural waters up there, but they're not, like, in a pen, and it's not the same as being in, like, the situation that Lolita's in. Like, there's other whales around and stuff. Yeah, this is actually something the Lummi tribe, they have been um, working a lot with Lolita's return home. Um, They were actually first contacted by this woman from upstate New York Mm -hmm. who said that she had a dream where Lolita kept coming back to her and like asking, I like, can you help me? I need help. I need to go home. And this woman took it super seriously. And she called the uh, tribal head of the Lummi nation and told him about this. And he took her claim super seriously and he brought it to the tribal council and, and, 20, I think it was 2017, the Lummi Nation passed a motion supporting the, um, supporting the Bring Lolita Home campaign. Mm -hmm. And ever since then, they've been really adamant about working to bring Lolita home. I mean, they have a whole plan of how she would get from Miami back to, uh, the rightful land in Washington. And they, they have been working with scientists, but also, and integrating their like cultural knowledge and with it absolutely and they they want to take her back to washington and put her in an open sea pen mm-hmm. so they want her back in the open ocean but mm-hmm. not necessarily all the way so like make it set up so she has enough room to you know jump out of the water and just dive and do what a whale does, something that she hasn't been able to do for like 40 years. Mm-hmm. And in this sea pen, she would be able to still talk with her family who could come visit, but not necessarily cross the water, cross the net to get into her pen. And being in the open open water sea pen, they would be able to monitor her and make sure that she's doing okay and protect her from animals that could harm her one thing that the miami sea aquarium has like claimed is that she can't she can't go back into the ocean because she doesn't know how to hunt she doesn't know how to fend for herself she might have infections and bacteria that she could bring to her original family and then saying that really just blows my mind because it's like you're you're telling me everything that you've caused yeah. This is all your fault. Yes. So that's that's their reasonings for why she should stay there. And the Lummi people and the scientists working with them have set up this huge plan to have her in her pen, isolated, but still able to hear, you know, because they have such a great sense of hearing and be able to do all this stuff. And when she's there, she would have 24-hour access to a rehabilitation center that's going to monitor her mm-hmm. and have that time period to adjust back into her natural environment and get rid of the infectious bacteria that she may bring. 
And one day they hope to, you know, open the net and let her fend for herself. But they plan on still being there and still having her rehabilitation center and still monitoring her, but letting her finally live her life again. Absolutely. Yeah. And, I, you know, at least one of the things that we know with like human memory um, is that like if you've learned it at some point, like even muscle memory, not just like, you know, things that you know, even if you think you forgot it, if you try it again, like it's quicker to pick back up on it. So, you know, if their brains are at all similar to ours, she would probably be able to like learn again. And also given that, you know, orcas are a communal species, I'm sure that they would be able to help her and teach her. For um, sure. You know, also that that is, you know, under the assumption that the pod takes her back. We don't know if they take her back or not. But that's, you know, it seems yeah. like that's a reasonable plan to at least get her in a sea pen because, you know, even if she isn't like hunting or, you know, with her family or breaching or any of the things that she's like wanting to be doing, I'm sure the like feeling of being in her home waters as far as like, you know, the motion of the water and like the salinity that they have. And then also the different like sights and sounds like that's probably going to be better for her than where she's at right now. Yeah. And the message that the Miami sea aquarium and just the government as a whole would be sending by giving Lolita back to, um, the Lummi nation and like bringing her back to her rightful family and respecting the indigenous people that we have exploited. Like that is, such a huge statement that they have in their arms that they can do, but they're not pushing for it. And I mean, I don't personally know about how much hope we should have of her going home because it does seem like this Miami sea cram is really just not willing to do anything. They've said that that by uh, putting Lolita back in the ocean, that they're just killing her. And they said, uh, you wouldn't do this to your grandma, so why would you do it to her? <laughs> it's like, Jeez. what the hell? Like, how is that a comparison? Like, you took their family member and put it in a tank and made it so she could never be released. That's shocking to me. And how businesses like SeaWorld and the Miami Sea Aquarium stay in business to this day, I don't know. Because it seems to me as though public opinion on whales in captivity has drastically shifted since, you know, the movie Blackfish. Um, but, oh, man, like, I mean, what is the benefit of keeping her there? You know, what is that benefit? It's strictly capital. I mean, she's not worth a life anymore. She's just worth the money that she brings in. So that's that's why they keep her. I mean, she performs twice every day for the past 45 years, and that's just money every day. She's... Um, She's, I think she's brought in like $64 million just for the Miami Sea Aquarium. And that's just her show, not even the whole aquarium itself. That's insane. Yeah, it's so, it's so bad. It is so bad. Oh my gosh. Like, I just like, I don't understand that. Like at this point, knowing what we know, it's just like willful ignorance. And it's just like selfishness at this point, because like we have the facts there to show that it's not good for these animals. And like, there are now resources for these animals to go elsewhere. Like you just said, the Lummi people are willing to take her back and like set up and and initiate all that. Also, you know, good plan B is the whale sanctuary project. Um, That's like, it's really disheartening. And I've, you know, I do know some people that are like in, that are like cetacean trainers. Um, 
And, like, it's still interesting to me to see how much people will defend that field. Like, even though we have the science to show that it's not helpful to them. Yeah, no, it blows my mind, too. There's a lot of, I know a lot of people, too, that are, like, their goal is to work with dolphins and whales in captivity. And many, like, many of them argue that it's for rehabilitation. And I have full support of rehabilitating you know yes if if there is a whale that's hurt that needs assistance i fully support that but if you're training a wild animal tricks that there's no arguing that that's rehabilitation no because that is just commodifying them yeah absolutely not and like the one organization that i always talk about when the idea of captivity comes up is clearwater marine aquarium have you been there i have yes it's like, in my opinion, it's excellent because all they do is rescue rehab and um, rehabilitate or rescue and rehabilitation, but they'll and release. That's the third one. I was like, there's three R's. Um, <laughs> but like I used to work there like when I was at Eckerd um, for a summer and then I did like an internship with them in their sea turtle like department. But um, they all they do is like they'll bring in, you know, any sort of marine mammal that comes in you know, to Florida, sometimes they may hold it and then send it somewhere else that like actually has space to take care of it. They rehabilitate the animals and then they send them back out into the wild. And like, you can walk through their sea turtle hospital wing and like it has that like two pane glass where it's like we can see in, but the animals can't see out. So they try to minimize the human contact as much as possible. And then like the only time that they keep animals is if they truly can't survive on their own. And winter, the dolphin's a great example of that because she literally does not have a tail. So like, 100% would get eaten by a shark like and and they do educate people like that's their whole thing like this is how this animal got here this is like what you can do like blah 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 like I would say I mean that facility does not get enough credit people need to give them all their money because like it's amazing you know and I think for those purposes then it's okay and like you won't they don't have anything exotic everything that like they have in their aquarium you can find on on the gulf coast which is exactly how it should be. Like, mm-hmm. we should not... There should never be an orca in f- the state of Florida. No. <laughs> Absolutely not. I mean, the sun is constantly, like, beating on Lolita's back. She gets so much, like, exposure to sun and heat more than she naturally should. And you see the difference between, like, the Clearwater Aquarium and the Miami Sea Aquarium. The Clearwater one, for rehabilitation purposes, you go there and you see the actual educational and rehabilitation set up. And there's not, you know, this grandstand to see a performance. They're not selling a medium soda for $8. They, like, they're wow. there for the fish and the marine mammals that they take in. And wow. then when you go to the places like SeaWorld or the Miami Sea Aquarium, you see advertisements to come see a show, to come uh, see a performance. And all of it is to get money, not Mm -hmm. to do outreach. Yeah, absolutely. And I think another thing, too, that I remember from being there is, like, Nicholas, one of their dolphins, he was, like, severely sunburned, and he was a baby when they found him. So he never learned the skills. And, like, dolphins aren't, like, or the bottlenose are not, like, orcas where they stay for their whole life. It's, like, fission fusion groups for the most part. Um, So that's why he lives there. But he was super active and wanted to do, like, jumps and things like that. And I remember they would be like, okay, like, you know, come learn about Nicholas. And Nicholas would do the jumps. And, like, sometimes he wouldn't. And they would just be like, 
you know, one of the important things to remember is that, like, you know, it is their choice, and we do this for his benefit because that he does like to do it, but if he doesn't want to do it, like, we don't make him, you know? Exactly, and that's how it should be. I, like, that is such a perfect example of how things have to be, and re- the thing with Lolita is they force her to perform twice a day every day. There's not a single day that she gets off. She lives she lives to perform, literally. They don't feed her unless she performs correctly. She has like learned that she can only eat when she does this and she hears the whistle. So when she's in the wild, it's going to be hard to transition her back into just being aware that she can eat when she wants. When mm-hmm. she's hungry, she can go hunt. And it's just, they're, by putting them in captivity and just keeping them in there and training them and doing, making them do all this tricks and stuff, they're stealing them of not just their identity, but their ability to survive. Right. And, like, who's to say, too, like, and obviously this is getting, you know, a little bit different, but, like, you know, we don't know what, what the experience of an orca is like, and we know that they have an extra part of their brain and that they are emotional creatures, like... And we use the whole, like, J35 example where she pushed her calf on a rostrum for 18 days. That There's no physical benefit to that animal. And, like, we see that in captivity they'll, like, slam their heads on the walls and they'll rake each other, which is not something that we typically see in the wild. And so, obviously, like, these animals have some sort of emotional intelligence and, like, that has to be awful for them to be in that situation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Lolita just swims around in circles all day. And the tank is so small, it's 20 feet um, wide on one other, and I think about 20 feet deep at its like deepest point. But in the center of the tank is the performance stage, so she doesn't even have the whole, you know, 80 foot, um, 80 by 20 that she can go. So she just has the outside circle, and she shares the tank with dolphins. How so she does that even, even have it work? All. Like, because orcas are usually bigger than it's, that. I mean, it, that's illegal. Like, the there are laws set for uh, sizes and that need to be in place for whale and dolphin captivity, and that tank doesn't fit the criteria. But there's just such a lack of enforcement that they're able to get away with it. It's so unfortunate. Yeah, I don't, like, I mean, hopefully there's something that they can do, and I think, like, even if we don't know for sure that, like, she would be able to go out and be with her family again, I do think the C-Pen option would be a more ethical way for her to go and, like, live her life. Yeah, absolutely, and if if they're not going to let her go back into the wild or go back home, they should at least, you know, express who she is in a better way. Let, let the world know what she really is where she really people about her family not just like her pod but the indigenous people that lived and adopted her basically absolutely and they could literally they could raise so much awareness for the southern residents too like they could like if their like guests that came in came in there and like walked out knowing who the southern residents were I guarantee you that so many more efforts would be put in place to save the Southern residents. So many, for sure. And there's, there's been, I mean, there's, you know, all the boycott SeaWorld stuff. And there's a lot of people out there who are boycotting captivity of things. But the way that the Lummi people have been boycotting it, 
is really, really, really special. It ties in their cultural background and their true relationship with Lolita. In 2018, after they found out about um, the woman that was having the dream of Lolita, Mm -hmm. they they made it a goal to bring her back. So they set up the plan on mm-hmm. how to bring her back and transport her. And when the Miami Sea Cram, you know, shot that down, they, the, um, this man, his name is Jewel Prang Wolf James. Mm-hmm. He's from the Lummi Nation and he's a master carver. Mm-hmm. Uh, in their culture, they use totem poles a lot to represent um their culture and history but also to honor things Mm -hmm. so in 2018 he uh announced that he was he's going to be carving a totem pole for Mm -hmm. lolita and if you go and like look it up or something it's it's so beautiful it's so pretty it's Mm -hmm. awesome it sits on top of two seals because in in their tribal legends they believe that orcas are the guardians of the ocean with dolphins Mm -hmm. as their warriors and seals as their slaves. Mm -hmm. So they actually had the seals carrying Lolita on the totem pole. Oh my gosh. And they, so he created this totem pole that took over a thousand hours because it's a whole, you know, red cedar that he somehow made a whale out of. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. I, don't know how someone could do that. Um, but he made this and they drove it from Washington to Miami mm. to set it up in front of the Miami Sea Aquarium. But what was really special is that along their way to from Washington to Miami, they made stops at other tribal lands mm. uh, throughout the country where they had uh, ceremonies to uh, have words of wisdom, dancing, singing, mm-hmm. feasting. And the most important part of it was that they invited people to come place their hands on the totem pole mm-hmm. to put their spiritual um, strength and oh um, like power into the totem pole so that when they deliver it, uh, Lolita will feel their energy and feel the connection that people have with her and know that she's not alone. Oh my gosh. So it's just so beautiful seeing the difference, the like very contrasting ways of activism through, you know, like just people that aren't indigenous and just, you know, yell things. And then the indigenous people that actually have this meaningful, super culturally significant relationship doing activism that represents the true meaning of who she is and why they're doing this and not necessarily doing it for the you know, performance activism. Absolutely. And, you know, that's interesting that, like, you know, kind of, like, when you're thinking about, or when you're talking about that, what I'm thinking is, like, there is so much, like, kindness and, like, gratitude, like, throughout that process mm-hmm. of, like, like, they're showing their appreciation for the whale and they're doing it from a place of love. And, like, I, like, you know, that's so interesting that they have that approach because, you know, activism, at least as I know it, or at least of what I've seen in, in white culture like you know today is like it is a lot of like performance culture and like who's gonna like go out and yell and like I've definitely participated in that like in different marches where you walk around with your signs and like you chant things and like um 
but like I think you know the approach that they have is maybe an easier one to like listen to if you're on the receiving end yeah and by making a whole journey out of it from Washington to Miami and stopping at all these places they generated so much awareness on the way because they like they they invited everyone it wasn't just just tribal people that went it was everyone that was around they invited and had come listen and participate in their culture right and they just had this open arms because they were doing this for lolita Mm -hmm. not just themselves they wanted what was best for her even if it was hard on them and it's just i i think that's just beautiful and the way that they made this demonstration not an like it wasn't something that was directly angry. Mm-hmm. They wanted to bring something to Lolita. Even yeah. if they couldn't get her back, they wanted her to have something and know that they were there for them. That's so beautiful, you know? And I think the journey definitely, like, shows the dedication and, like, you know, the amount of love and effort that they're willing to put into it. And, like, I do think that that's one of the things that we need to bring into our problem solving skills is like more love. And I get that that's kind of maybe not the answer that a lot of people have heard or not the thing that they've been encouraged to do, because at least like in the scientific community, we're taught, you know, to be objective, but we should be objective to a degree. But then, you know, once we have the information that we've objectively collected, you know, add empathy to that, you know, and like kindness and love. And like, that's so important and who knows like where we'll get with that but there's so much that can be learned from that too in the way that they do that and like that's such a beautiful thing to like make something for her and then have like so many people put their energy into it like as opposed to just like yelling in front of the miami seaquarium you know yeah exactly it's such it's it's more of a demonstration for her than it is for the miami seaquarium and there's a lot we can learn from the way indigenous people like perform activism and there's so much we can do on our part as just people being alive and living on this land that isn't ours you know we can like first and foremost we need to work on listening to the indigenous voices we need to hear their stories we need to understand what it is they fight for and the reasons they live, you know, I mean, we're never truly going to understand everything because we aren't going to live their experiences, but just to start, we need to listen. And that's something I really hope people learn from this is just listen and be open, be open about it and go out of your way to learn about it. Don't wait for something to come to you, like make an effort to make a change. And that change just starts by listening. Absolutely. And yeah, no, that's definitely really important. And we need to do more of that. And like, obviously, like, when you try to listen, if you're talking to people in person, like be mindful of, you know, their culture and maybe look into reading like, you know, what some of their like customs are too to like be really respectful about it. Um, But yeah, no, I think you're right. We need to listen more. And like, unfortunately, so many of those voices have been very unjustly um, silenced. And you know, like I definitely a lot of those voices don't get heard and they don't get amplified. We need to amplify those voices when when they do want to be heard, because I can totally understand 
like some people just don't want to talk about it. Like at least that's kind of what I've experienced. Um, like people in those communities, like not all of them, just like a, a few because that it's hard and they've been through a lot and like, that's valid too. But just like when it's time, if you are privileged enough to have the opportunity to like, listen to one of those people do it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. That was like uh, such a journey of how did we, how we got here, like from, <laughs> we love the orcas and then we hate the orcas. And now, I don't know, what is your perception on our current perception of orcas? Well, I think it really show it really follows the agenda of capitalism. You know, we saw something in the wild that we didn't have control over. So we had fear about it and we hated it. And then... Once we had control of it, we ruined it. And we saw the beauty that it had before we had the control. So it's it's like a side effect with capitalism is that if you don't have control over something, you fear it. But once you get control of it, you ruin it. And I, I think the view that we have of orcas now is, it, I think it's heading in the right direction. Um, you know, Canada banned the captivity of orcas and whales and dolphins as a whole uh some other countries have banned it hopefully the u.s will ban it um but i think right now we see orcas for their natural beauty and like who they are in the environment but what we need to work on is understanding the relationship that they have with the indigenous people i think that's something that's way overlooked and something that needs to be acknowledged because it is such a beautiful history and it's incredible to just hear about it and read about it so i think we're heading in the right direction but we need to work on the voices that we're listening to absolutely yeah i like i'm so excited that you did this research project and that like you were able to share it with us and that like you know selfishly i'm always like excited to continue to build relationships with the school that i went to and like i'm glad that you were a part of that and you did a very good job of like articulating that and I'm, you know, excited to see what else comes out of this. And I think what I'll do is any of the resources that you used, um, just so that that information could be a little more accessible to people, I'll put it in the description of this episode. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I always ask people, like, at the end of every episode, what can we learn from the orcas? So what can we learn from the orcas? Or Lolita, for example. <laughs> um, I mean, honestly, we can learn the strength of resilience i mean they've gone through so much um people have went out of their way to kill them and just completely wipe them out and they've separated families by putting whales in captivity but yet they still endure and they still go on and they still fight for a life that they rightfully deserve in the ocean mm. and we've been living in such wild times. I mean, the world is so unpredictable. We have no idea when something's going to take a full 360 and change. Yeah. And I think if we take the perspective of orcas and just take on that change and just move with it, mm -hmm. don't like, don't stop and just keep going forward. And eventually things are hopefully going to get better, but not necessarily right away, but just don't stop. Yeah. Absolutely. Take breaks if you need to, but never fully quit. <laughs> Absolutely. Take breaks when you need to. Yes. 
Well, thank you so much for being on here and thank you for like all the work that you've done. This is definitely, it's like been a pleasure having you on. You can come back on anytime you want. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It's been so fun doing this project and working with you. And I'm so glad we were able to connect. Yes, me too. Thanks so much for joining us, guys. Tune in next week. We're going to talk with one of the volunteers at Orca Lab up in Canada. She's going to tell us a little bit about the institution up there, how they conduct their research, and some of the different issues that the northern residents are facing. But thanks so much for joining us, and have a great day.